Good morning. Good to be with you. It's a privilege to open God's word to you. We'll be in Psalm 139. This is quite different. You really can't see anything from here. So that's good. That's good, maybe. Um, it seems uh, like a year ago, but it was just five Sundays ago that we began this uh, summer in the Psalms when Jamie Johnson kicked off uh, Psalm 96, and he brought to us the importance of right worship, what we just did, right, right worship, because the Lord reigns, and it's right to worship and honor and, and, and recognize that. The next week, Pastor Olivia challenged us with Psalm 115 and, and reminded us that the idols of the Old Testament still exist. They just exist in a different form, and, and to challenge, to look in our hearts for the idols of our hearts, reminding us of the great Martin Luther quote that we are idol factories. And then a couple weeks ago, Saturday at the Red Berry Barn, after we did a rock and roll revival, which was fun, those of you who were there, uh, Pastor Mitchell brought us into discussion about worldview in general, biblical worldview, and the importance of asking the right questions. Last week, uh, John Ratliff, brought a message from Psalm 132, and he, and he brought in the idea of confession, both the importance of private confession, but public in terms of uh, in, in accountable relationships. And he actually led by example, if you notice that, that he led as a good leader would lead by example in confessing to us that his boyhood, boyhood idol was the Fonz <laughs> from Happy Days. Um, he, he chose not to wear the leather, leather jacket today, but he's got one in his closet at home. <laughs> so we're going to mine some nuggets from Psalm 139 this morning. But before we look at that, let, let's look at a question here. I think this is a really important question for our time. Not our specific time. The next couple of hours we're going to spend together. It, that was a joke, by the way. Um, <laughs> but the time in which we live. Here's an important question for our time. What's more important? What you think about God or what God thinks about you? I want to set up some background for why I think this is an important question for the days and the, the, the time in history in which we live. But first, I have a confession to make. It's not a dirty little secret or a dark event from the past, but it's this. My wife and I like to watch quirky British crime shows, <laughs> mysteries, quirky. Quirkier the better, almost. An example of quirky, and I'll let you let your imagination fill in some of these gaps. The, 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 the victim of the crime is a retired professor of ancient Roman history with an expertise on Roman war machines. The, the particular crime involves replica Roman crossbows, hundreds of arrows, a booby-trapped newspaper on the front lawn of his perfectly manicured English garden in his perfect English estate. Now that's quirky. Again, I'll let you fill in the imagination of how all that comes together, but that's quirky. Another aspect of quirky when you watch some of these shows is that when they gather the suspects, they all seem like they're just normal people. 
they're just going through their lives and, and they're trying to figure out um, among these normal people who might be the perpetrator of the crime. In a recent episode, the criminologist that was a key character in the show is looking at the crime scene board as uh, is usual in, in these kinds of shows. And she steps back and kind of muses. It's the criminologist's job to create a profile for the kind of person that they're looking for, a kind of perpetrator they're looking for. And she says, after examining some really bizarre relationships in the, in the three crimes that had been committed, she says, it, it's, a, it's as if they've lost the plot. It's as if they've lost the plot. And that was a key to profiling the particular perpetrator of this crime. Now, now there's a bit of irony here to me because this is a, a made-for-TV written story, right, that has a plot and subplots. And as part of the plot is they've lost the plot, that a character has lost the plot. But if you step back from made-for-TV crime shows, and you think about that idea of losing the plot, maybe that rings true in the world today. You look at the seemingly senseless war in Ukraine that none of us really understand, the rise of mass shootings, the rampant racism that still exists after hundreds of years in our country, the violence in our street, extremism on both sides of the political aisles, even climate change. And you say, have we lost the plot? Have we as a people lost the plot? But just as the TV story has a script and, and screenwriters who have a particular design for how they're gonna unfold that story that has a beginning, middle, and end, so the assumption of a plot in our culture and that somebody has lost the plot means there is a plot to be lost. It means there is a story, a greater story, that a meta-narrative, as it's been called, that overarchs everything in history. And if we've lost the plot to that story, it's easy to understand why, as individuals, we seem to have lost the plot in relationships and in, in, in society. Of course, there is an author, as Christians, as believers, we, we believe there is an author and there is a plot with a beginning, mid, middle, and end for all of life and history. It's got, and it's true, the author's name is Yahweh, Jehovah God. He is our creator God, our king and our Lord, and he reigns whether we experience that on a daily basis or not. So I wanna, again, background to Psalm 139, where I think gives a corrective, the beginning of a corrective to this idea of losing a plot, give a little bit more background about where we've arised in, in history and why it could be that we've lost the plot. Slide, please. In a live stream event in October of 2020, uh, the veteran long-time Christian apologist and author Josh McDowell did a live stream event for the C.S. Lewis Institute with the title, what, Cha what challenges do we face in passing our fate to the next generation? A big $50 word, he said, there's been an epistemological shift 
epistemology is the study, the philosophic study of where truth comes from. Why do we believe what we believe? And he said their culture has gone through an epistemological shift over the last 900 years in four movements of history. I don't have time to go through those. Next slide. But what's happened over time is that man has been elevated, has been maximized, and God has been minimized such that we would even say that man is deified and God is humanized over these four incremental shifts in history over time. Next slide. So what we end up with in our culture today and why this is so relevant to losing the plot is God isn't even in the narrative. He, he's not even in the picture. He's not even on the radar screen. Humanity alone is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no objective outside truth. We're the truth, or so our culture tells us. The implications for this are huge in every aspect of life. Next slide. C.S. Lewis actually picked up on this as early as 1943 in his famous work, The Abolition of Man. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and we are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. Is that me bumping? I'm breathing on it. Well, stop breathing. Is that still okay if I move it down that far? Thank you. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. Again, huge implications. Next slide. Particularly, and we were touching on this in the worldview questions that Mitchell brought us into a few weeks ago, particularly as we come to understand personal identity and, and purpose and meaning. Trevin Wax in a a recent book titled Rethinking Yourself. He doesn't use the idea of epistemological shift, but he brings in the idea of inner culture, where does truth come from? And he gives us this idea of looking in to find truth and meaning, looking out and then looking up in, in that order. And the looking in is that I discover personal meaning and decide for myself who and what I am. The you do you, you're enough, be authentic. It's that message that our culture gives us. You, you, you just need to look in and you decide for yourself who you are. You don't need any reference to any outside truth. And then as you get clear or have an idea, you might bounce that off of by looking out to some other people. Of course, you'd only look at those who would agree with you and, and find people of your own tribe. And if anyone disagrees, you, you just cancel them. You say, I don't, I don't want to hear that. And then finally, if you still need some validation and you decide you want to look up, the, the looking up would be to philosophy, um, Eastern mysticism, anything spiritual, um, even, even simple um, maxims and aphorisms uh, that make us feel good. Of course, you wouldn't 
go to the Bible, and if you did go to the Bible or the Christian God, you would just choose the things that you agreed with and leave everything else, kind of like the Jefferson Bible. You wouldn't um, draw in anything from the Bible that challenged your assumptions and pre presuppositions. This is how we've lost the plot in our culture. This is the environment that we've li we live in. And we've lost so much in this losing the plot. We've lost the sense of the sacred, the precious, preciousness of life as a gift, including the, the awe, the, the great awe of a majestic God who created the world and we get the privilege of serving and walking with him as he accomplishes his greater purpose in, in creation. So how do we recover the plot? That's where Psalm 139 comes in. So if you have your scripture, it's going to come up on the board back here. I'm going to read it and comment uh, as we go. But put simply, the recovery of the plot is we need to restore the creator-creature relationship. We need to restore the creator-creature relationship. Psalm 139 can help us do that. Again, rather than reading the whole psalm, I'm going to read the stanzas and then comment on those and draw you into God's word. Let me pray as we begin and get into God's word. Lord God, as we put ourselves before your word, open our hearts. And as always, Lord, we invite your spirit to be our teacher and our guide. It's helpful always when looking at the psalms to look at the structure. We have four stanzas of six verses each, four verses descriptive, and two are kind of a summary at the end of each of the four sections. The psalm begins and ends with this idea of search and fun for our detective uh, investigating theme, the Hebrew word for search can also be translated investigate or examine. So here's the first stanza in we, we often, I don't know about you, but when I read the Psalms, I often ignore the, the beginning to the choir master, a Psalm of David. Those are actually in the original. The title normally that's in your Bible isn't, but we need to account for the fact that the original scripture said to the choir master, a Psalm of David. We're gonna read some personal musings of the shepherd king, some personal musings of a poet but he's writing them for the congregation. So you are to receive this as he imagines himself, but you're to imagine yourself in the same situation. It's for the congregation. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and, you, and, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. We're going to see in the course of this psalm three, three things, things that are mind-blowing, things that are life-altering, and things that are eternally consequential, particularly as we think of this in terms of plot recovery. These words, these connective words, it's not like he looked up at a thesaurus and said, how can I come up with different words that mean the same thing? It's really a, a Hebrew poetic uh, device 
to communicate comprehensiveness. He's saying, God knows me completely and comprehensively. There's not anything that God doesn't know about me and you. He knows my thoughts. He knows my activity when I get up. He even knows what I want to do today, even before I do it. Even before I speak, he knows what I'm going to say. And the, this idea and this imagery converges down in verse 5. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. I don't know if you've ever been felt hemmed in by life. A few years ago, I was in a situation that I felt hemmed in by life that there wasn't anywhere I could go. And I was invited in um, to a, a pretty complex situation and asked to take some responsibility that I did not feel that I was ready for or that I was, I, I, I was really adequate for. And it, it came, the issue came to a bearing on Saturday and I had to give him an answer by Sunday afternoon. I went home and talked to Joy about it. And we prayed about it. But it was a sense of hemming in that, that there wasn't any, I, I didn't know how to say no, but if I said yes, the implications were huge. And the next morning we were at worship as our, as our practice. And that incredible song, all of you might know this song, the Matt Marr song, I Need You Every Hour, was sung. I'm so distracted by this decision, but I felt as if a hand were on my shoulder, pushed me to my knees, literally, in the worship service. And it was as the Lord said, okay, you're going to be okay. My hand is on you. Just keep this posture and you'll be okay. I'm not sure if that is all what David was after, but this sense of comfort by that hand on the shoulder, not fear. And what it does is it blows his mind. He, he doesn't know how to get his head around this incredible intimacy of God. In the next stanza, stanza the second stanza, we see this idea that God surrounds me. As if I wanted to flee, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the mornings and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me again with the hand of God. Your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be it... <coughs> and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. David, th this idea of, of the spirit and being present, is such a big deal. The presence of God in the Old Testament and New Testament, they didn't have the idea of the indwelling spirit. It was very, the spirit's indwelling was selective. This idea that God is present is very, intimate and special to, God, to, to David, and he's drawing from that idea. And he thinks of the world and the earth in poetic terms in three dimensions, a vertical dimension, the heavens to the lowest parts, even to hell, and then very poetic image from east to, east to west, from sundown to sunset. He says, there's nowhere in that space that I can go. God is everywhere. And if there were an idea that I could hide, that I could pull a cover over me like an invisibility cloak, maybe it's the darkness. I could just pull the darkness like, like covers on your bed and I could just hide under this. Maybe like when you were playing 
uh, hide and seek and you hid in a dark closet and thought, nobody can find me. They can't see me because I'm in the dark. Light is as dark, or dark is as light to God. And David finds comfort in that. But, but there's this tension. Is this comfort? Is this apprehension? We had a professor at Bible College. Joy and I went to Bible College in Northeast Portland in the early 70s. And, and he taught Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament. His name was David Needham, tall, real, thin man, um, a little bit taller than me, real, real angular features. Seemed like he wore coats and, and clothes that everything stuck out, big long neck. And he would get railing about prophets and talking about Elijah or, or Jeremiah. And he would get his cheeks flapping and his white mane of hair going. And he looked like a prophet. And he, he, he would foam at the mouth literally. And we joked as students that nobody sat right, right in front of us. It was the splash zone. And there are, there are exams in Bible college, and, and he would give an exam, and he would say, I'm going to leave the room now. And he would always tell the same story. However many times you had him, however many exams he gave in his semester, he'd tell the same story about students who came back later and confessed to him that they had cheated on his exam, even after him warning, and this was his warning, I'm leaving now, but the Lord is watching you. <laughs> leaning over. So is David apprehensive? Does he receive comfort from this idea that God is watching? The, uh, the next stanza, the four links the first two stanzas to this one, this incredible intimacy of how we're created. For you formed me in my inner parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book was written every one of them, the days that were formed for them, for, for me, when as yet there was not one of them. These four verses are all about our conception. It's like David is thinking about darkness and he thinks about a time in his life where he was in darkness, in his mother's womb. And he, he realizes that God was present in him even before his mother knew she was pregnant. God was with him. And halfway, a little bit more than halfway through in verse 14, the psalm, he says, I praise you. We finally get a response from the, the mind-blowing part of this truth. And this becomes life-altering for him. Life-altering. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul, in the very depth part of who I am, I know that I'm made well. And I'm made for a purpose. And I'm made for a God who created me. The, the fun part of this in the idea of fearfully is not people are going to be afraid of you because of God's, but that you're awesome. The same word can be translated awesome. God, God made you, and you're awesome not because of anything that you've done, but because God put his hand on you. That is mind-blowing and life-altering to understand that you're awesome. Turn to your neighbor, give him a high five, and say, you're awesome. You're awesome. 
on the authority of God's word, you're awesome. That's right. And then the, the psalm really converges at the end of this third stanza in this, these incredible verses, which is uh, part, of, part of the key to, to this message is what does God think about? What does God think about you? What does God think about most of the time? And this is crazy. How precious to me are your thoughts of God. This is not David's thoughts of God. This is God's thoughts of David. How vast is the sum of them? If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. God thinks about you more than you, you think about him. He thinks about you all the time. That ought to do something to us. That ought to respond in a that ought to cause us to respond in a way that, that bows the knee and says, Here I am, Lord. So complete this sentence for me. Complete the phrase, if you want it done if you want it done right, do it yourself. That's what God said. The proof of his own infant commitment is he has not left you to chance. He is involved with you 24-7, 365, every moment of every day. He thinks about you. And the significance for plot recovery, let me tell you one more story about awake, but the significance for plot recovery is, is really key here. This idea of awake could, could either be he awakes from the dead and, and the other life, or he, he just awakes. And we're going to get into a potential occasion for this particular psalm. But I was in Zimbabwe a few years ago doing some work with leaders and grassroots leaders in a community. And the guest house, incredible hospitality in the guest house. And we'd get up in the morning, move around to the, the dining place and um, where we were having our meetings. And all of the staff would greet you with this same expression, mamukase, mamukase. And, it, and finally, it, it rang true to us that they're saying the same thing. Is, is that like good morning? And we found uh, one of the few that spoke English and said, Mamukase, what, what does that mean? And said, well, it, it has become a good morning, but literally it means, so you passed the night. <laughs> Congratulations, you passed the night. In a country with Infant mortality rates so high, they don't name the children until they're five years old. It's a big thing to pass the night. You're to be congratulated. David isn't sure that he's going to wake up in the place of the dead, or he's going to wake up in the land of the living. But he knows that either way that he goes, God is with him, and he's thinking about him. So what is the significance for plot recovery? You cannot grow emotionally, spiritually, or mentally beyond your understanding of what God thinks about you, of your understanding of God's love for you, his creation of you, and his acceptance of you. And so I have the first of two applications there's more instruction. There's a handout you can pick up on your way out. There's more instruction to go behind, beyond, uh, behind this. But this is something I picked up a couple years ago called Beloved Charter. 
um, picking it up from the title coming from the great uh, verse in Matthew, Jesus coming up out of the water after his baptism, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. Before Jesus ever did anything, he's affirmed in his identity by his, his father. And so the, the point of this is to find some scripture and marinate in those scriptures that speak specifically to you about who you are, how God made you. This is the beginning of my beloved charter. Again, there's, there's a instruction for how to take this uh, to that level. Um, you can bring that in. You can pick that up outside. All right, we're going to land the plane here in a few minutes, but let me, uh, let me get to this fourth stanza. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God, O oh men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. <clears throat> do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And you say, where in the world does that fit in this warm, tender psalm about God's intimacy with me? Suddenly he wants the, God to kill people and... and <laughs> Uh, take it out on his enemies. But if you think about it, this is the point of convergence. We're, we're not quite sure what the occasion is for this psalm, but it strikes me that uh, David, in a number of times in his life, had times where things were uncertain, unpredictable, and indeterminable. He didn't know when they were going to end. He didn't know how they were going to turn out. That is a a perfect um, formula for anxiety and stress, maybe like the last couple of years with the pandemic, and maybe like the world that we live in. But notice what David did. It's the third stanza before he gets anywhere hinting even of this occasion. He goes, he looks up, he looks at who God is. That, that's the, the, the first and foremost expression. He begins his own plot recovery 101. And one of the, the points of convergence of this, if you think about it, 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 if the tendency of our culture is to look in, then if God is involved, the constant question is, whose side are you on, God? But Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. The question isn't whose side is God on. It's, are you on God's side? That's what David is coming to. Because you're not in God's story. Sorry, God is not in your story. You're in his story. By the way, this is an important point as we continue to study the Gospel of John. We'll get back in the fall, I'm sure, in that Jesus is constantly pointing out that the Father sent him. He's the point of the story. The Father has a plan that in the fullness of time comes to bear in Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Pay attention to that. And all of this has eternal consequences as we finish up here. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. And so this great expression of searching, which God initiated, it seems like, now David reinitiates back to God as he realizes who he's, who he's dealing with, whose story he's in. He invites God to search him. 
lest even what he just said of zeal for God should be misaligned. Um, know my heart, try me, and know my anxious thoughts, know my, my cares, my concerns, and see if any hurtful way, anything that's not aligned, and lead me in the everlasting way. All of these choices have eternal consequences. I've got one more story to tell, um, but the, the second application, even a little bit more involved than the first one, suggests a way to bring yourself into this open examination as David did. 10 minutes at the beginning or end of each day, and you begin with this prayer, and you ask four questions. Lord, what should I be thankful for when I look back on this day? What have been my moods and attitudes? What are you asking of me? And finally, when I look forward at the day ahead, where do I need your help? I, I know when I was working and going to a job every day, one of the most important things I felt like to, for, to sense God being involved in my life was thinking through my day and inviting in ahead of time, inviting God in to, to those anticipated opportunities. So as the worship team comes up, let me, let me finish with a story. The 1920s and 30s are considered the golden age of detective fiction. Conan Doyle is still spinning cases for the intrepid Sherlock Holmes. Catholic thinker and writer G.K. Chesterton introduced the inimitable sleuth priest Father Brown. Agatha Christie is beginning her prolific and legendary mystery writing career that spanned four decades. And Dorothy Sayers, a Christian scholar and one of the first women to be awarded a degree from Oxford University, created the aristocratic problem solver, mystery solver, Lord Peter Whimsey, and the for, first female detective, Harriet Vane. Sayers also was one of the instigators and the ringleader of the super secretive detection club. No kidding, this really existed. Uh, many of the aforementioned, by invitation only, association uh, a by invitation only association of published writers of detective fiction Membership in the club included taking an oath of initiation, which among other things, asked the writers in crafting their plots to solemnly swear never to conceal a vital clue from the reader. Consider this, the great author of the greatest story ever told has given us all the vital clues we need to follow the plot to its glorious ending. An ending so complete and so perfect and so consequential that it is really the true beginning and the whole point of the epic story of history. If you have the courage and conviction to take on the case of the lost plot and the great plot recovery, the restoration that leads to the, 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 the case that leads to the full restoration of the creator-creature relationship, you must begin your discovery journey, not by looking in, not by looking out, but by looking, first looking up to Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. 
The game is afoot. Are you with me on the case? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for opening our hearts to you. May we go forward in faith and allow you to apply your word to our hearts today. In Christ's name, amen.